Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm Carrie. I'm Isaac. And we are joined today by uh, my uh, colleague at the Center, the Snowland Center for Creating an Army of Radical Socialist Christians, Rosie Snow. Rosie, welcome to the pod. Hi. Yeah, in addition to that, um, I also am on staff at Wesley Memorial <laughs> United Methodist Church in Charlottesville, which is where Isaac was formerly the pastor. Yep. And yep. I'm still there. <laughs> the, yes. And <laughs> living in the shadow of the Falkirk Center for uh, figuring out if Jesus was a socialist or not. I don't know if the Falkirk Center is going to survive Jerry Falwell getting fired. Is it the Falkirk Center in Lynchburg? Yeah, yeah. That's like 45 minutes from Charlottesville, not even. Big shadow. I guess I always think that Charlottesville is like way farther away just because culturally it feels (laughs) far away. from. Yeah, I don't think they need any help from us as far as, you know, antagonism. They're providing all that they need themselves. Yes. Well, um, we are here today to answer that age-old question. Is Jesus a socialist? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) We're here today to talk about a really important topic that was kind of born out of a lot of thought and the conditions of the pandemic. So we want to talk with Rosie today about attention and about uh, organizing and our relationship to the non-human world and all of those things. But Rosie, why don't we just start with um, a basic idea about where these questions came up for you and, and when you started thinking about them? Yeah, it has really predated the pandemic. It really has come out of just over the years, realizing how detrimental my use certainly of, you know, screens and social media is and its negative impacts on my mental acuity and my well-being and my ability to to feel connected to God even. And then having very obvious impacts on the larger collective level. So it's already something I've been thinking about and something that I think many people have started to think about much more seriously. And that's why books are starting to get published. Those books you know, that ideas for them were conceived years ago and the research had been ongoing. But the pandemic has certainly brought that into sharper relief. I think for many people have gotten, many people have gotten more sucked into social media and their attention has gotten even more consumed by this, these for-profit online media and then others have felt an invitation to turn their attention elsewhere to find that there are other options that we can re- return to to rhythms that have sort of evaporated recently or even find ones that we never had to begin with. Yeah, so I want to throw this over to Brian and Carrie. What are y'all's like social media things looked like during the pandemic has it changed any it doesn't just have to be social media but media in general like where do y'all find yourselves that in month what 14 of the pandemic <laughs> month 13 <laughs> maybe not quite that many i guess 11 uh yeah i well i basically lost the ability to read um So I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast, but I actually did contract COVID in 
December, um, which has turned my brain into mush. So I like haven't read a book since 2020. So that's great. But I've been on Twitter like way more than usual. And I've, I got back into Tumblr because I started watching Supernatural. So I don't know, it's like not a good thing for me in this pandemic, but it does, it does genuinely feel like my brain can't handle much else. Like I'm either working at my job that requires kind of a lot of attention from me or I'm like on Twitter because it does not require the kind of uh, focused attention reading like actual words <laughs> requires. I don't know. What about you, Brian? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I've, I'm probably on the same amount that I was before, which is probably too much. I, I've never had a, like, I, I, I have plenty of friends who take, you know, social media breaks and, and things like that. I, I've, I've always been able to balance it. I feel like I just don't. And so that's always been easy. I've been, I've been actually pretty glad uh, to have it over the last, you know, year just to be able to connect with people. And, um, you know, it sounds cheesy, but like just that, it's like one of the few remaining ways I can still connect with, you know, even people that live just down the road uh, from me here, you know, and people at church, stuff like that. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm always wary of it. I'm always like, a, I feel like a half step away from just quitting, uh, rage quitting, uh, as, as Isaac would say, uh, Twitter and, and Facebook and never being seen again. But I don't know. So I, I kind of balance it back and forth. I don't, I don't ever feel like it takes time away from me. So I still get the reading done that I like to do. I still get to play the video games that I need to play. Uh, all the important things that are happening in my life still happen. So I, I don't know. I, I, for me, one thing is I took it off my phone. That seemed to help. So I just don't, I don't have it access it anymore, just like right in my hand. But then, you know, I'll just, I just fudge that and just like, I, I'll just log in on the web. Uh, if I really, if I'm sitting in a parking lot somewhere waiting for my wife or my kids. So I, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I haven't really changed much since the pandemic. And I've just listening to you talk about being able to game into your 40s just really gives me hope. Gaming you know, and snowboarding. Yeah. Gaming and father and yeah, gaming, snowboarding, getting tattoos. I, I, I'm just, I'm living the best life up here. Dudes rock, dudes rock. Yeah, I mean, I think that. Uh, <laughs> fucking love it. You said like posting and gaming, all the important things in life. I mean, what else is there to say at this point? This is why we started the podcast. Just more posting, audio posting. Um, longer form now. Yeah, longer form. I mean, for wouldn't, sure. it, wouldn't um, it be ironic though? Well, if this is the one. If this is the episode that did get us canceled, so we should we should really try to work for it. They cut to come out against Twitter and and all of that and get canceled by by Twitter. So, uh, I you know people on the pod, uh, fans of the pod, know that I got off Twitter in December because I think for me it was just like. I don't know, just the doom, the doom scrolling was, was too much. And so I, I got to a point where I just sort of deactivated the account, but I, I want to go back to Rosie because that's actually not, I mean, it, this pod isn't just about self-righteously like berating people who are on social media. That's, that's not what it's about. Uh, you're probably finding this podcast through social media. So I, but what are the ways that, um, one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to Rosie today is because social media just, um, happens to sort of prey in and work on our brains in the same way, uh, in a way that sort of deteriorates this practice of attention. So I, I want to move into that so we can sort of flesh this out and not come off as like, oh, like how awesome we are for saying, for going on like a social media cleanse. So Rosie, well, and I want to be clear that I am not doing any of, I've gotten deeper in. <laughs> yeah, we heard you, we heard you, like... 
coming off like a heroin addict. You just can't get enough. <laughs> the supernatural, the tumbler, slippery, slippery slope. <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> yeah, it is the slippery slope. Yeah, I mean, just to interject there, because I don't want to, that to be how I'm stepping into this conversation. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, part of this also came out of a book that both Isaac and I have read called How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. And she makes it clear that it's not about... Uh, totally cutting out social media and phones and screens and, and media in general, that is a part of our modern lives. And, and it has a lot of very important and useful purposes. She talks more about, to think about it more as, as adding, making space and adding in things are forms of attention and connection that are life-giving as opposed to just cutting out something it's more about making space for what is going to make you feel more alive and more well and more connected and grounded. Yeah. So what, um, what is the sort of basic building block there? How would, how do you define attention, Rosie? Well, there's what I would say it is. I tried to research this a little bit. My best friend is a neuroscientist. And so I, I was messaging her and I said, well, what is, what is the definition of attention as far as neuroscience goes? Because a lot of people are studying this. And she, she asked a friend who actually studies this primarily. And the friend got right back to her and said, oh, that's easy. It doesn't exist. So apparently there's this debate uh, among scientists about whether, what's the difference between attention and what is called working memory. And working memory is just the ability to hold specific items in your memory for a short time span. And there's debate about whether attention is just that or if it's something a little different. So right now there's some, some space for us to make our own definitions, I think. The way that I would describe it is that it's a mental connection that you form with another entity or stimuli that allows you to be affected by it in some way. Word. I mean, I, I think that this is it's interesting you talk about neuroscience. I mean, this is also like a major question across the history of philosophy with about a billion different answers. Um, the questions around consciousness and everything else. But, but I love that your answer makes it sort of primarily relational, right? I mean, one of the things that Ginny, that Carrie has also read the book, one of the things that Ginny O'Dell talks about so well in her book is just that the way that when you learn to practice attention and nature that what it creates are more relationships around you right and she talks about this idea of species loneliness that the human beings most most americans can't name any of the plants or animals or trees around them and so you basically become the only living thing in your field of vision that you recognize as another living thing you know, the, the natural world kind of just falls into the category, yeah, the category of things or something you don't even notice. But when you practice attention to the natural world and, and learn to engage with it and see it, then what ends up happening is you create, you suddenly find that there are relationships there. I've just been re reading a novel by Richard Powers called The Overstory. And in it, he talks about the ways that trees react when people walk around them that trees will like release certain chemicals to try to attract you closer to them, depending on like if they need someone to brush up against them in order to release seeds or that trees will like uh, produce 
chemicals that like make you feel good so that you'll come near them or that they'll like summon uh, insects when they're under attack or that they'll let out signals to other trees in the forest if they're sick or all these other things. And and so that it, it, it's almost like living things around us are always noticing us, you know, the question is whether or not like we're sort of noticing them. And and so that, that definition of relationality uh, I think is, is at the heart of like, what exactly does, what exactly does attention entail and what is it like waking us up to? Um, but I want to throw it over to Brian Carey to responses to this. What do y'all think of this definition? It's interesting because I think, you know, the, the whole, the thing about recognizing and being able to name species that caught my attention as well, because and then just you, when you extrapolate that out into uh, like when you when you make it into something like being the self-centeredness of like I'm the only thing that exists. I mean, that's like that could be a working definition of social media in a lot of ways. Um, and so like the ability to not see other people, I am not going to go down the unity track. Don't worry. Uh, but but I think the the ability to like to very easily demonize, very easily kind of wall yourself off into a, a and this is I think progressive and conservative. Uh, or evangelical people, whatever, into where you're only getting a certain amount of information, uh, that strikes me as something connected to that. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a thought right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting you say that because I, I think one of the questions that everybody's trying to figure out, and Rosie, I, I want to throw this back to you, is I think that part of the thing about social media is that more than it just being like, oh, you know, it, it just becomes all about you or this bubble that, you're, that you curate. I think that it, one of the reasons I think that people espouse for continuing to be on it and in one way or another, whatever works for them is relationship. I mean, this podcast wouldn't exist without social media. I met Brian and Carrie on Twitter. But I, I think that, so is there a difference, Rosie, in your mind between the types of relationship and community building that people talk about on social media as the purpose of it versus like the like the sort of relationships and relationality that attention brings. Yeah, there's no question that social media, let's just talk about social media, can be extremely generative. You know, there are plenty of marriages and partnerships of all different kinds and, you know, just beautiful connections that have been born out of it. And it can be used to organize and it can be used for many purposes. It, there could have been an sort of mirror version of this that was not for profit. And if, if you can imagine what social media would be like if it wasn't for profit, it would, it would, the experience of using it would be very different. It wouldn't be as addictive. I think that things that, and, and the algorithms wouldn't be the same because the, the algorithms, and I think many of us are aware of this at this point, have, um, have allowed certain types of messages to kind of rise to the top. So I think that the things to be aware of, I think that if we're, when we're using social media, there just has to be a sort of awareness of what we're getting ourselves into and the downsides of it. You know, as with anything, the more intentional you are, the more love and desire for, for good that you bring to it, the more that's gonna manifest in that medium. I think that the two the two things to be most cautious of with social media is the way that it, it is affecting your brain. You know, it is affecting your attention span and and the way that it's it's affecting your emotions. So this is something that Isaac and I were kind of writing back and forth about, but what highly emotional content 
is more engaging and it captures our attention more. And there's a lot of research about this. And so what, what is going to be shared more is, is, has a more highly emotional punch to it. And usually it's more negative because that also is more engaging for, for humans. We are, we are evolved to be on the lookout for information that's important about something dangerous or something that we need to pay attention to. So that's what rises to the top. But human beings cannot function well if we're stuck in a high stress state. So if, if, if everything that you're seeing is going to keep you in a very high stress state, it's really, really unhealthy. And we, we need to be able to fully process whatever stimuli comes across our, our eyeballs and, and, gets to, and starts to cause a physiological reaction. You need to be able to process it fully. And especially for, for extremely um, upsetting or traumatic information that's, that is affecting you, that, that does affect the collective we need to be really intentional about have, being able to process it from when you first see it to, to that stress response to being reactive, reacting to it, but then going into a space of evaluating it, reflecting on it, potentially with other people, and then, and then integrating it and being able to move into a, a space where you think, okay, well, what are we going to do about this? You know, what are we going to do about this? That's, that's positive. That takes us into a different space, but we are stuck in the reactive space a lot. So I'm not saying you shouldn't use social media. I think it can be powerful. And in fact, it would be even more powerful if we were aware of these different things. We're human beings and this, this technology affects our brains and it affects our emotions. Well, it's like my, my daughter one time said, you know, um, shit posting on Twitter is an activism. It's like, all right, there it is. So it feels like a lot of the, a lot of, you mentioned like those two kind of steps after kind of um, reacting to it, and that especially on like Twitter, it never goes beyond that. And it really? never, and I think that there is a, how to say this, like I've learned a lot on social media, like a lot of my um, kind of like, growing into like an actual leftist as opposed to what I was before, I guess, came through Twitter, right? Like through being like hearing something, being challenged by it and being like, no, that can't be right. And then processing it like you're talking about. But I think, I think, you know, this might be a jump, but I think you see a lot of progressive white people <laughs> on Twitter who know the language, but they don't actually, it's not like rooted inside them. And so they get exposed all the time by um, kind of making these leaps or they get, they get um, what do you call it, uh, rewarded for being performative in this way, but they actually haven't like internalized what they're actually talking about politically, theologically, philosophically, or otherwise. And so I, I wonder if that's part of it. Like, like how does activism, I guess, move from that reactive thing where I think you're right, has a lot of really good stuff into being something that people actually like internalize and then make real in the world. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it, we're given a lot of good topics that we should have conversations about through Twitter or whatever, but I think it remains the most useful or the most generative way to respond to that remains having conversations with other people, you know, yeah. whether that's, that's on a Google doc or whether that's, that's uh, over zoom or whatever. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the interesting things about the book is that, and about what you're saying, Rosie, just to respond to something that Brian shared earlier about how you can kind of get into um, a cultivated space is that one of the things that Odell does so well in the book is talks about how basically what happens is not, we don't end up in a cultivated space. We end up in a really context-less space to where we're sort of like only speaking into the lowest common denominator of engagement. So like she... In, in a very hilarious moment in the book, uh, describes her Twitter feed at a certain point in the summer of 2018. And I just have, I just have to read a couple of things that she writes. An article on Al Jazeera by a woman whose cousin was killed at a school by ISIL. An article about the Rohingya Muslims fleeing Myanmar last year. An announcement that the Share Zone, a joke account, is selling new t-shirts. Shout out to the Share Zone, which is a very funny account. Someone wishing happy birthday to former NASA worker Katherine Johnson. A video of NBC announcing the death of Senator McCain and shortly afterward cutting to people dressed as dolphins appearing to masturbate on stage. Which made me think that she's definitely seen a crab dance video. Uh, <laughs> but um, one of the things she goes on to say is like, how are you possible? How is like your brains ever possibly supposed to make sense out of, out of any of that? Not only all, I mean, and there are more after it, you know, a, a, an article about the Pope being pro protested in Dublin. Like, she's like, you know, this is a mix of calamity and humor. And like, how is any one person supposed to have sort of a string of thoughts around it that form into anything um, sort of coherent? And then, and then she said that this is ultimately, I think, what ends up happening with some of the island culture on Christian Twitter is that when it, you're always, throwing things out into the lowest common denominator instead of a instead of a particular context, then you're like sharing thoughts with folks who really have no connection to you in a particular way. Whereas this attention to the world, the natural world around you, the plants that are supposed to live in your place or ones who have invaded your bioregion versus the animals who are there are not. Like they're all in relationship with you because they belong in the place where you are and that and that cultivating of community um is something that i think that she's arguing that we've lost and and it ends up having that effect on i think uh emotion and attention especially in, in moments of crisis in in collective action how about we just go to that note that idea about collective action you know we've been talking about how how um when we respond to something that happens, a crisis, we always want to figure out what to do and, and how, to, how to respond in a way that's substantive and, and sustainable. What role does attention play in sort of making that possible for us? Well, I think part of it is it's just a practice that if we're starting to, on a daily basis, deepen our ability to pay attention, to be more aware of our connections with others in our community or even the, the natural world around us and and receive really the the gifts that that god gives us through these practices when those moments of crisis ar arise we have more wherewithal to kind of be able to go through the process and and pull on everything that we've observed and that we've learned that god has shown us and to have some sense of, of what we might do next yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think that one of the things I've struggled with over the last couple of years being involved in activism in Charlottesville or 
you know, working on Maria's case or stuff at the border, seeing like really an intense tragedy and then seeing people move on pretty quickly. I mean, the biggest thing we saw with that um, was after A12, you know, there was this big concert announced in Charlottesville with like Dave Matthews and who else came? Ariana, Ariana Grande. Ariana Grande. And you could like sign up for a free ticket. And then mostly people who didn't live in Charlottesville got tickets and went. <laughs> it was like, but I remember seeing people who are like not from there being like, this was so like, so moving, moving and cathartic. And I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that to me, it's just like this, I don't know how Brian and Carrie think about this, but sort of the constant moving of crises and, and the like instant billion posts about it. I don't know. I, I think for a lot of folks, it's led them to sort of find a find it difficult to respond in a way that doesn't go beyond that kind of sentimentality of like, oh, let's have a concert to wish Charlottesville good luck after the Nazis came. Or, you know, even with the Capitol riots, like let's have a concert with Tom Hanks and <laughs> or Springsteen and other people to to kick off the new thing. What do y'all think about any of this? You actually inspired a sort of new thought as you were saying that. As I as I responded to you before, I, I'm I'm not as down on the concert as you are. I, Just yeah. because I I mean it sucks if only outside people were able to, to be there. I do think as a thing to happen, or, I mean the alternative is that it doesn't happen, but a concert did happen. And I think music can be healing for people. And if that helps someone, then fine. But that can't be where it ends. But something that that maybe has has come out of maybe this is maybe this is a positive thing of just the constant the constant stream of traumatic events happening and then people moving on qu- quicker because they're just happening so frequently that you don't have time to respond to all of them and you, like again you can't stay in that high stress place i think for me as more and more of these things start to happen you start to notice that so many of them have the same root causes. And I, I think collectively you've started to diagnose some of them that, that are correct. Like white supremacy is at the root of a lot of them, if not all of them. And so the challenge then becomes, how do I address this deep, deep root problem that all these other problems are, are, and crises are coming out of and I think the answer is it has to be in a very, it has to be addressed on a very deep level that involves not just doing hard things and being present to the, being equal to the moment that you're in as far as action, but it needs to take a very deep spirituality that involves taking ownership of our, our attention, which is in fact an extremely powerful spiritual tool. But I think. Isaac and I have kind of been dominating the conversation. I don't know if y'all have thoughts on any of that. Well, I, I think the uh, the thing that I really appreciated about that was I'm not as down on the concert as you are, Isaac. I mean, that's just a classic. Uh, yeah, that that tracks. Uh, because personally, <laughs> personally, I think it would be super cathartic to hear Dave Matthews Dave Matthews sing uh, "Crash Into Me." Um, but anyway, I um, that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> we know you lived through the '90s. I, I went. I only want to tell you how many Dave Matthews concerts I went to. 
<laughs> so we're, we're going to move on. But I think where I see this a lot of times is, is um, whenever like an execution or like a high profile execution happens, all of a sudden, all kinds of people start, and I'm not even talking celebrities, just like everyday kind of people that I know will start posting about it. And then when that one passes um, and the, the person is usually executed, you know, there's always another one and it's usually within a couple of days, but immediately there's a drop off in posting. And so that, that's how I see this when that happens, because that's something that I care about. And the frustrating thing is, I think, I wonder if there's like, maybe you were talking about this before, but there's an overexposure to crisis, right? And so that you don't ever get a chance to kind of really grab onto one and say, this is something that I care about and I'm going to track through. But I, I don't know. I don't know, Carrie, if you have thoughts on this, but that's that's where I see it a lot is you, you'll get, you know, all this stuff like, this is a travesty, da, 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 and then nothing the next day. It's like, well, if it's a travesty, you should be posting about this all the time. So anyway, write a book about it through HarperCollins, available everywhere. <laughs> a national book award long listed. Well, we don't have to go all into all that, but it's called We'll Fly Away if you're interested. I, I think specifically within the, the context of the pandemic, the issue that I run into is like, obviously I, I don't want to just be uh, posting about the topic du jour, but like for me specifically, um, I mean, like we're, I've been in my house for like almost a year now um, and we're, we're probably not going to go anywhere and that's a real privilege, but I, it's also like, I, what else, what else do we do? Like I can give money and I can post and that's about it. <laughs> and so I think, I think the, like when I was listening to this conversation, it was like, this is all well and good conversation for like normal times, but we're in the middle of a pandemic. And I think that that's what makes it hard. Um, to discuss the impacts of social media versus like IRL activism versus IRL community because like I haven't had I haven't I have not like seen anyone in person other than my parents in 11 months <laughs> and I don't have a church community or an activism community uh, just because of the con- like the context of my life so I don't know if I'm going anywhere with this I just I I think what I would, like, I I hear all of the problems and I think I agree with, like, all the things that have been said. I'm just unsure on uh, where we go from here when this pandemic is kind of endless. Mm. Mm. Not to be a downer in the chat. No, No, I mean, I I think it's a good question. It's like on some question, you know, on some level, there's a reality about power, right? Like, we are at a time where the government is really actively sabotaging local control over health health departments and vaccine distribution and everything else. And um, that's certainly happening where we are. Uh, where I am, the former wrestler Kane uh, is the governor or is the mayor of my county, and he's actively trying to disband our local health department um, because they want mass mandates. Meanwhile, he spent his entire wrestling career Ironic. wrestling in a mask. Ironic, yes. So it's kind of like, okay, well, I, I can't get back to normal community, normal forms of in-person community until the wrestler Kane starts, stops doing a chokehold on my local health department. Um, all this is for Brian. We're, we're in my wheelhouse. You better get off of this path quick because I'm about to, about to take over. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Rosie, what does attention look like when there's sort of nothing, quote unquote, to give attention to? I mean, th- it, at some point, this is a, g- a great tension in the book, right? Is that Ginny Odell says, you know, I don't think anybody who's read this book actually wants to do nothing. But so what is, how, 
how do we kind of begin to answer that question? It's a good one. I think at this stage, the only thing that I'm inviting anyone to do is just to start to be aware of, of, of this and to start to think about it. There's nothing that anyone needs to run out and start doing, especially right now and for the past year in particular. Everyone is completely overwhelmed, going through really hard, hard life situations on many different fronts or different areas of life. And so this isn't something that, this isn't another thing on the to-do list that you need to do in order to be a successful or thriving person. It's just something to start to be aware of, especially on a longer timeline. I think a lot about how when computers and, and, and phones became more like my generation and the same age as, as Isaac, you know, it was sort of coming into being, but in the background, you could kind of turn, take it or leave it, computers throughout the 90s. And then in high school, it started to, in college, it started to become much more prevalent. And it was all super fun and like going on YouTube and and just finding funny videos and then tech, being able to text your friend and, and Facebook. And it was all, all just seems like upside. And, the, and it was over, over course of many years that the more insidious effects of it started to be felt. So this is something that, is unfolding over a long timeline. I just think that at, at this point, we're invited to start to be aware of the effects and, and have some autonomy about how we actually want it to fit into our lives. And it's, and it's not even just about social, social media. It's about, it's about the importance of spiritual practices that Christianity certainly provides. There, and there's so many choices, not even reading, just, just sitting and, and meditating, prayer, um, anything with nature. And that's where a lot of this comes out of. And a lot of my discussions with Isaac are, are about nature um, and, and how life-giving it is to connect with nature and, and also how urgent at this moment in time. So it's, it's not, this isn't, I never want to, to be promoting something like 10 tips to do this or like 20, 20 things you should do in order to, to be a better person in this particular, particular area. It's really just the start, I think, of a conversation. And I've been thinking about it in the context of Christianity because I think this is, this is one crisis, the crisis of attention that Christianity actually has something to, to offer people right now instead of being the absolute last, last group of people in line to address any given crisis. Um, this is something that, that Christian communities can be proactive about just because of the, the wealth of, of spiritual practices that do cultivate attention in various ways. There's so many of them. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we got it back to spirituality because to me, this seems to be one of the more I think that this discussion about spiritual health is really missing in a lot of younger groups of, of Christians I've been around. You know, I know a lot of people who have sort of described themselves as religious, but not spiritual. Um, 
maybe like the response to more older people who have described themselves as spiritual but not religious to me in the past. But Carrie and Brian, I I want to bring you all in on this too. But you know that that spirituality aspect of it. It seems like a lot of people in our generation right now are are exploring it through like tarot cards and astrology, or even maybe the enneagram, and and it, and there's something about it that just feels like. Um, that was a shot fired. I'm just, I just want to recognize that <laughs> tying enneagram no, to tarot cards. Shot across the I know, just right across there. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> Do you know that it was created by the I, desert fathers and mothers to <laughs> unearthed in a tomb? Right? It was, wasn't it in like a like the Dead Sea or scrolls? Yeah, yeah. Are you talking about tarot cards? Back on yeah, track. They found, they found a deck of tarot cards with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. It was actually a deck of Pokemon cards. Um, <laughs> and Jesus' birth chart. Yes. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, it just seems like, um, I, I don't know. It seems like it's not something that, it seems like it's something our generation is hungry for. But to me, I, I don't really see the church like um, speaking into it. So I'm curious to hear about what y'all, what y'all think about spirituality or how you practice it or how you struggle to. I mean, where are y'all at with that? Well, I do want to push back a little bit. And then I do think that like parts of the church, uh, like parts of the evangelical and charismatic world are actually very into spirituality. And um, I, I don't need to get into it. I just like did a lot of research on this when I was in college, but I just, I think that like you can either be like spiritual and religious, like you are hella evangelical, like Jesus is my boyfriend, or you can be religious, but not spiritual in sort of the mainline way where it's like, whatever brings you closer to God, whether it's tarot or the Enneagram or, uh, crystals, which I don't, I don't, this is not like a blanket condemnation of those things. Like, I don't know. I just don't, we can have a conversation about that later, but I think that American culture generally is kind of bad at, um, having any sort of spiritual practice. And so people Mm -hmm. are grasping for that. And the church has responded in very different ways, um, in ways that pretty much align with like the uh, conservative to liberal like spectrum within uh, like theological positions. So, which I just find interesting. I don't really have a conclusion about that, but I just think it's kind of fascinating that like w- I had a very healthy spiritual practice and a much more on fire connection with Jesus when I was a charismatic missionary than I do now for lots of different regions, but I also have like way more trauma because of my time as a charismatic missionary that probably I wouldn't have if I'd like gotten into tarot cards when I was 21. Yeah. I, you know, for me as a, as a person that has like transitioned into the Episcopal church where, you know, everything spirituality comes out of this, uh, I'm holding up the book of common prayer. Uh, I just realized other people aren't going to be able to see that. Um, you know, and, and there's such a there's such an intense uh, focus on like contemplative practices and being soft spoken and quiet and and just not quick to speak. You can see where this is going, where this might be problematic for me. I, I kind of go the other way, where it's like for me, I I think what I've been thinking about in this whole conversation is the way social media was used during like the George Floyd protests here in in the Twin Cities is like there was a sense of community around that and there was a sense of kind of belonging and I would even I would call it spirituality by just being able to go out there there are people making now whether you want to talk about people making pilgrimages to the site where he was murdered 
you know, if we're making pilgrimages to a place of, you know, black pain and death, uh, that's a whole nother question. But I know for me, like I, I have never connected to like spiritual practice where it's me just sitting in silence for 10 minutes. Um, I, my mind wanders immediately. I start thinking about Kane being a mayor in Tennessee or whatever it is, um, <laughs> uh, which I love, but at the same time, I just, I, I want, I want that to live separate of any kind of actual political policies, um, but whatever, um, you know, but at the same time, I'm also, I'm, I'm wary of people who say, I find my faith in by going and taking a hike every Sunday morning, because I think there's a community aspect to that. Like both of those two things strike me as, as, as challenging because for me, I guess what I'm trying to say is a lot of my spirituality comes out of like community practices, um, whether that's worship, whether that's having a conversation, uh, starting a podcast, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, like that's the kind of stuff that actually kind of brings me uh, life or nourishment spiritually. Glad we finally admitted that podcasting is a form of worship. <laughs> there it is. Yes, <laughs> I'm really not sure that's what you just said. I, that's not what I said. I said a spiritual practice. I was, and it was a joke. It was a. Okay, I, I do want to get back to you because I think that this is actually a really important point that evangelicalism um, addresses spirituality way better than the mainline, and, and that's why it's still like retains a lot of influence with young people, right? I mean, I think that for better or worse, like it, it's. You know, we, the mainline is so hesitant to talk about spirituality in a way that, you know, even gets close to, um, I mean, I don't know, it, like, we just don't, it's not like we're offering a healthy alternative to the traumatic sort of experience that many people coming out of evangelicalism find, but it's still, I mean, I, I would, you know, when I was working on our show notes for today, I kind of posited this, like, conservative spirituality rotation or liturgical calendar between like the 4th of July and Christmas and Memorial Day and, and you know, kind of this constant, the national anthem, this constant kind of um, culture war that they're fighting. But what are some of the other things that you would identify as spiritual practices that, that ring true for you there? Because I think this is a super important thing that uh, to kind of draw out on. Um. Wow. Okay. So on the spot, uh, I just, I think that there's, there's the kind of like the, the America first conservatism of it, of like the, that you mentioned, but I also think that like the, uh, the worship practices that are much more ecstatic in evangelical and charismatic, uh, context just kind of generally lend themselves better to spiritual experiences. Um, I mean, in ways that can then lead to trauma because people maybe are feeling like pushed into feeling emotions that they're not actually, that they, that they wouldn't otherwise be experiencing except that they're in this crowd of people who are all like worshiping very loudly in the same way. Um, I also think there's a whole um, framework of mission. Like, I mean, we could go down so many rabbit holes. There's an entire framework of missions that is predicated on um, transforming the missionary instead of actually helping the um, marginalized people that these missionaries are supposedly going to go help. Yeah, uh, off the top of my head, that's what I'm thinking of. There are other things we could go down, but I just, I, like, there's just way more emphasis on on emotion and on an emotional connection and a, a personal emotional connection with Jesus in evangelical spaces that I've seen versus um, 
mainline spaces. I mean, I'm thinking specifically of the Episcopal Church, since that's where I am, where they they are really hungry to like get those evangelical numbers and like like do sort of like a, a sort of outreach on an evangelical scale, but they don't like quite know how to use the language or like how to how to hook those people in because it's it's emotion based and yeah. that's not a bad thing, but it's it's just not uh, the liturgy the the Book of Common Prayer that was written in like the 1600s is not gonna like pull the people in every time. <laughs> yeah, and we talked about how um, how emotion and, and attention are linked. So the more emotional something is, the more emotional the, the content is or the, the practices that it's drawing people's attention in a certain direction is, it's going to draw people's attention more instead of, you know, sitting through a service in a mainline church and kind of zoning out because it's just not that interesting to you. Um, but maybe it's that the emotional content just may not be there, but then, and that can be a really powerful tool to be used for good or evil. If you get a very large group of people whose their attention is, is all going the same direction, you know, that's something to be very careful of because then you, you can co-opt that attention for whatever purposes you want. And that has absolutely happened in this country <laughs> and many different places. But Brian, you were, you were about to say something. So I was going to, I was going to come to the defense of the book of common prayer. Um, <laughs> oh, no. I do not. I mean, you said it, Rosie, you said it much better than yeah. I ever could have. So thank you for that. But I, I, the Book of Common Prayer is not my beef. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to bring Book of Common Prayer into the fight corner? Come on. Uh, no, I, yeah, I, I wasn't going to say much different what you said. I, I think there's a, there's a balance of like, I think also Episcopalians especially, or people who are in kind of traditions that have um, an expansive, uh, <laughs> I was going to say backlog, but that's not the right word. Um, but they, they, I think they're quick to cut that in, fo- in favor of trying to attract people. Whereas a lot of times, I think just being able to say, hey, this is who we are, is actually going to attract and be, you know, the, the Episcopal Church is probably not going to start exploding in membership because of, because of the Book of Common Prayer, but it's also not going to do it because we're, you know, trying to follow the uh, teachings of Andy Stanley and how to, uh, and how to grow uh, churches. Uh, anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to get off track here. So I have another thought that I would like to add if we have time. Go for it. Which is that I also think that um, in a lot of uh, evangelical or charismatic spaces, there's also this idea that like having a really emotional connection to Jesus and having a strong faith is uh, in some ways countercultural. Um, and, you know, like so much of American religion is, is, is not countercultural, right? It's like, it's, it's building up like this Christian state, but, but it's, it's very nice to believe that like, you're in the, you're in this big group of people, you're all shipping Jesus and you're, you're doing something that is outside of the mainstream culture and you're doing it for a higher power and you're doing it for God. And I think that uh, a lot of mainline churches, like their whole ethos has been to, uh, to move with the culture. And uh, I think that evangelicals have often accused mainline churches of like just moving with the culture. Whereas I, I don't agree with that criticism of mainline churches that like, it's hard to talk about, right? Because like the Episcopal church ordains LGBT people, which evangelicals would argue uh, is the Episcopal church caving to culture. Um, But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that the Episcopal church owns the national cathedral and has always been part of the project of 
transforming American culture from the inside and using their power and their proximity to the seat of national power um, as some form of Christian witness. And I don't know that that's actually an effective form of witness. And I don't know that that's what Jesus calls us to. The idea that you can like walk into an Episcopal church and like maybe someday you'll get to meet the president or something. It's like not as exciting an idea as walking into an evangelical church and getting to have like an intense experience Mm -hmm. with the Holy Spirit. Maybe I'll disagree with this when I re-listen, but (laughs) (laughs) that that was what I was thinking. The the, the National Cathedral bit, I think, is spot on too, because that's a huge, how did this turn into an Episcopal Church podcast? But uh, that's, that's, no, I'm I'm here for it. Like there's, um, there's a, that's actually part of the problem with what the church, and I think a lot of churches are going through right now, is they can't see themselves outside of that cathedral mindset. So being, so it's not that we're getting smaller, it's maybe that we're getting right-sized and pushed out into the margins where we should have been all along. Anyway, Isaac, would you like to bring up the Methodist church? Uh, no, I'm actually going to make a different connection here okay. because I, something that I'm hearing in, in what Carrie said reminded me of our conversation with Amy Peterson uh, a few episodes back where, you know, when she was writing about virtue and and one of the ones that she talked about was lament, the virtue of lament. She said that she got the most pushback about that because people were saying, you know, what is there to lament? And like, to me, that that's a question of attention. And and what, um, the, you know, Carrie, I, I think you're spot on with the sort of dueling bad alternatives that you laid out there about <laughs> the emotionalism that's sort of available or the spirituality that that is offered and. And what sort of draws people there? And and I guess that I would just offer up, you know, the the times that I've felt I felt most spiritually fed in in twenty twenty were in the streets during um, the Black Lives Matter movement, during protests, community protests, and action, because it, it is an example of that attention that that is focused on relational plurality and and power sort of coalescing itself through the participation of, of so many uh, so many people who are different from each other and coming together for this like single purpose to envision a different world, right? And and I think that, it, Rosie, I, I kind of want to like just throw that off to you that there's something in, you know, there was a protest in June in Charlottesville where like the main event of the main like sort of culmination of the protest was people doing like the cha-cha slide down the streets, the, the one of the main streets in... In Charlottesville, and, and there's something about that that gets to the heart of what we've been talking about when it comes to attention. Just the fact that here we were using this, shutting down this road that's one of the main sort of thoroughfares in town, and using it for something totally ridiculous and banal, and for the sake of something that's extremely worthwhile and and important and and a life or death matter, and and that's the sort of attention and community action that when we withdraw our our attention from these sort of capitalist uh, monopolies that are trying to co-opt it, that, that can be opened up, this other space. Um, yeah, I, if you think of attention as the door that you open to form a connection with another being, especially when we've all been starved of connection, the pandemic is starving us of connection. But even before that, when we look at our broken humanity, so much of it is that we are, have separated ourselves from everything that, that surrounds us in creation, from each other, from all other beings in this community with us, that we've separated ourselves. So it's a, it's a, it is an incredibly moving experience 
and I'd say highly emotional experience to open that door of attention in order to reconnect with people when we've been separated for a long time. And, you know, that might be an answer to the success of, you know, in evangelical spaces, there being like these very emotional experiences of connection with, with the divine in some way, but it's, but it's in a, in a context that, where there's also a lot of harmful ideology and, and politics that have co-opted that attention and that, that surround it on all sides. But, but if we bring, if we bring that same principle to live it in the real world, whether that we're, whether we're dancing in the streets of other people for the purpose of our collective liberation, or whether it's for me, I think it's been more getting more involved with the sanctuary ministry at our church, which as, as people have, have opened the door of attention to get to know Maria and get to connect with her in some ways, it's, it's been the most powerful experience, spiritual, or one of the most powerful spiritual experiences of their lives. Yeah. And, and, and I want to kind of bring it back to maybe bring us back full circle, Gary, if, let me see if I can like make an effective comparison here. I think one of the things that we, we were trying to say about social media is that like our attention there has been commodified so that when we engage, we like, you know, whatever the fucking name of the guy who owns Twitter is like Jack, Jack. Yeah. Um, he looks like he microdoses a lot. <laughs> it's time to just regular dosing yeah and meditates he looks like someone who really is in control of his attention but maybe not to the best uh anyway i i interrupted you and then took took the conversation right into the ditch that's okay i'm now thinking about a sliding scale between the uh <laughs> alienoid um hairline of mark zuckerberg to like the scruffiness of jack and then there's tom from myspace in the middle <laughs> it's a very short spectrum yeah yeah um mark zuckerberg's hair whoever you are that does that who's whoever's like sculpting his hairline please come on the pod (laughs) it's not natural that is like it's intentional happening there is really bizarre anyway um now i'm triggered uh so like you know when when you know they they talk about like the, the the guy who invented pulling down to refresh your feed on twitter is like that's an addictive activity that that programs your brain to sort of have a dopamine hit and like that pulling down is, you know, making the money in the similar way that emotional spirituality, that is a genuine human need in evangelical churches is, is it at the, um, is being used for it's useful for the continuing of this sort of Christian nationalist state that we've talked about. And, and that's where that usefulness and, and cooptation is exactly where we get to the part where like, the question of our attention becomes a question of refusal and power, right? Like where we say, okay, will we, you know, Christians, will we allow spirituality to be co-opted for the sake of, of white cishead sort of supremacist patriarchy? I mean, just in one Can you say that five times fast? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what, you know, so yesterday my annual conference did a webinar on online worship and it was, Done. It was led by a guy from Ginghamsburg. Now I'm going to take it back to the United Methodist Church. Uh, 
Brian, just for you. Just bring it up. Yeah. Yeah. He he wrote a book. His newest book is called From Franchise to Local Dive, Multiplying Your Ministry by Discovering Your Contextual Flavor. And it's like the top half. I wish we could have a screenshot of like all of our faces as you said that. I'm here for it. I like it. I like it. I I don't know what you're going to say about it, but I, I like where he's going. Go ahead. Well, but the top half of the book has got like a quarter pounder from McDonald's box. So the bottom <laughs> half looks like it's, you know, uh, from a, a $10 burger place in a gentrified neighborhood. But like just that, that is the exact thing that we're talking about here. Like, how can you co-opt your parishioners' attention to to turn your your worship space into something profitable? You What's know? the so, goal? Yeah. Sell I, more cheeseburgers. I guess I I, I took that more optimistically. Uh, I, I think that's that's probably what it is. I, I was thinking about like, when you start thinking about like missional theology and like context-based ministry and stuff like that, where it's like, you know, there's the, the, the story that went around here in the Twin Cities was a church that all of a sudden started just basically, they were, they were uh, dying and they decided, I can't remember what they did, but they started like doing all this kind of like outreach and they started getting back on track. So that's, that's where my mind went with that. Hopefully, yeah, but I think the choice of metaphor there is, yeah. oh, is pretty yeah. telling. Well, yeah, I, you didn't tell us about the picture though. Like I, I was thinking like dive bar, local, you know, economy, and I wasn't thinking about, you know, burger joint in the mission district. So anyway. Okay. I'm ready for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get a $15 cheeseburger or a McDonald's. Anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> final thoughts, folks. What are they? Become a communist. Don't turn your <laughs> church into a franchise. <laughs> oh, I don't know that I have one. I'm, I'm going to rest on Carrie's. That's mine too. I mean, my final thought is that um, read the book if you want to learn how to turn uh, your neighborhood crows into, into your friends. Because uh, apparently with the practice of attention, they'll like hang out with you. And that's all I want in this world. Okay. So are, we at, are, 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 are we ending there? Because that, that is way too earnest for an ending of this podcast. <laughs> Crows, please, please be friends with me. Uh, Rosie, thank you for coming on. Do you want to plug anything? Well, I, I do have a, a series of videos on the church's YouTube channel that kind of talks about some of these ideas. Um, for anyone who's in a church context who wants to start thinking about this stuff and bringing it up with others in their church, it could be a good place to start. I don't, I don't know what to say that will lead people there. I mean, it's just Wesley Memorial's We can link them. Yeah, yeah. We'll link them in the show um, notes. Yeah, and also, you know, let's collab. We've got thoughts about, I, I'm just starting to think about all these things, and I, I, I love thinking about things with other people, especially being isolated. So if you're someone who's also thinking about these things, just reach out to me, and maybe that will lead to something. All right, y'all. Um, this is fun. Brian, I actually think you're right. This may be the one that gets us canceled, especially the comments we made about tarot cards and Enneagram stuff. I know. My, my daughter is into tarot cards. I, I Every time she brings it up, I'm just like, don't talk to me. Or astrology. She's really into astrology. And it's kind of like, there's, this is a whole other podcast. I'm into astrology. I think it's super interesting. And I think it's really interesting to think about what it's offering people that Christianity isn't. Rosie. Like there are concrete things it does that right now Christian could do, but it doesn't do right now. Rosie is just waiting, well, that, in, the, right, waiting in the tall grass for me to bring up astrology. Uh, well, that was what I was trying to point out, right? It's yeah. that, uh, is that it's clearly meeting a need that, that yeah. we're not. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and it's I was like, trying to say that in a roundabout way, and then I got distracted by the evangelicals. That's pretty cool. But all takes have been revealed. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Truly, they have. Uh, and we will keep podcasting until we get canceled. Thanks, everybody. Bye.
Thank you. Bye.